Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, president and founder of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on tech policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I head development at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. Now, this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. Today, we're going to talk about data and data sharing and how to safely share socially valuable data while also safeguarding individual privacy. Our guest is David Deming, who is the academic dean and a professor of political economy at the Harvard Kennedy School and is the director of the Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. His research focuses on higher education, economic inequality, skills, technology, and the future of the labor market. Welcome. Thank you. It's really great to be here with you both today. That's a big bio. You're you're busy. <laughs> I try. Yeah. So to start, could you tell us a little bit more about what all of that means about your work at the Harvard Kennedy School, particularly as it relates to our topic today, data and privacy? Sure, Jackie. Yeah. So I I'm an economist by training, and so I tend to think about you know benefits and costs, trade offs as as economists do. My own work is really focused on, as you said, education, skills, technology, and, and I guess kind of thinking about human potential, for a, a lack of a better way to say it. How can we leverage technology to empower people to be more productive in the workplace and to lead happier, more prosperous lives is something I've become increasingly interested in, in part because if you look at the way that the labor market has changed, so much of it is about the way that technology has changed work. So you think about the sort of di- you know digital revolution, the computerization of the labor market, what are what is what are these new technologies good at? They're good at replacing the kinds of things that people used to do that were kind of repetitive and rote and can be recorded in some sort of formal process, for example, using data. And what's left are the things that are kind of hard to record and ambiguous. And so, you know, soft skills like creativity and teamwork and problem solving become more important because we've got machines to do the other things. And if you kind of just carry that forward, well, first we had machines kind of replacing these routine mechanical and physical operations. You know, you used to have a shovel to dig a hole and now you got a bulldozer. That's a mechanical replacement of labor. And now increasingly we have digital replacement of people. So we used to have, you know, payroll clerks who would add up a ledger if you owned a grocery store or something, you know, adding up what you bought, looking what you sold, you know, making sure you're keeping the bottom line healthy. Now we have tools like, you know, Microsoft Excel, spreadsheets, digital recording of data to replace that. And that data lives on forever and has a record and can be used by people who are running a business to make good decisions about what they should buy, what they should not buy, what they should sell their products for, and so on. And you can sort of play out that analogy throughout the labor market. And so the value of data for improving decision-making is is central. Um, And as we have acquired more data, the ability to use that data well becomes a really important human skill. And so that, that was kind of my, it's a long story, Jackie, but that's, that's my entree into this space. And then I just started to think more about like, well, what, one of the neat things about data is that it's a kind of renewable resource. It can be replenished. So my use of the data doesn't crowd out your use of the data. And so that means, you know, all, all is equal. The more people who can use it, the better off we can all be. But then there are these privacy trade-offs. So that was kind of the genesis of this column that I wrote in the New York Times about balancing the benefits of data sharing against the cost, the privacy cost of it. And in that column, which is actually how we found you, so thanks for being here. Um, In that column for the New York Times Economic View, you wrote about a lot of necessary public uses for data. Can you go into those a little bit? Sure. So 
I mean, again, just to say that the really neat thing about data is it's what, what economists would call non-rival, which means my use of it doesn't prevent your use of it. Most things are not non-rival. Most things are rival, right? If I'm using a physical tool, that means you can't use it while I'm using it. It could be a, a bulldozer to go back to my example or really anything else, a computer. But if I'm, I'm a labor economist, and so I work a lot looking at data on the state of the economy, if I'm looking at the unemployment data for the recent month, and I'm kind of crunching the numbers to figure out, you know, what do we think the job market's going to look like next month? I could be doing that at the same time Rob and Jackie are doing that on their computers. And it's not, it doesn't prevent any of us from doing it at the same time. So we can all use the same data to produce different insights or the same insights. And it's kind of, as I said, a renewable resource. And so that's really important for thinking about economic growth, because a lot of if you think about, so this is um, Paul Romer, who recently won, not that recently, but a few years ago, won the Nobel Prize for this fundamental insight that knowledge is a non-rival good and that creations of knowledge, what he calls recipes. So like new ways of doing things like developing vaccines is one example, is something that if I figure out a new recipe or a new formula for how to get something done using data, then that can immediately replicate all over the world. So once you figure out the formula to creating, let's say, an mRNA vaccine, you can distribute that knowledge everywhere. And so the example that I gave in the column was about how the U.S. government-led human genome project, by enforcing strong norms about data sharing, there's this, what they call the Bermuda Principles, which was all of the labs who were participating in sequencing the human genome agreed together that they would post their data on a public website within 24 hours of sequencing it. So whenever they sequence a new gene, they'd post that data for anyone to use. And it was actually that set of norms, that Bermuda Principle commitment, that allowed folks to immediately map the coronavirus genome within a, a few days of it surfacing. We actually had the ingredients to produce a vaccine before it even came to the US. That was how quick the diffusion of that knowledge was. So that's a case where making a commitment in advance to making data open and available to everyone saved, literally saved millions of lives in ways that nobody predicted at the time. So the Bermuda Principles were not about preventing the next pandemic. They were a general norm about the benefits of having data available to everyone for lots of reasons. No one foresaw this particular use, but you could imagine that those same set of principles will have other benefits many years later from now that we can't foresee. And so that's just one example of how a commitment to making data available to everyone frees up innovation and frees up knowledge and the growth of knowledge in a way that can save millions of lives. I like the fact that you th you're thinking about this from an economics perspective, because as much as I'm sometimes critical of economics for being sort of too focused on allocation efficiency and not enough on innovation, it is important to analyze public policy questions, at least looking at economic issues. It doesn't have to mean they're paramount in the decision making, but they at least need to be considered. And that's we can talk a little bit more about why that isn't happening as much as I think it should be in Washington. But one of the keys to me is it seems like this is partly a prisoner's dilemma issue. If I'm an individual and my data is, is there and I can share it, and let's just say there's a minuscule risk of my data being shared in a way that could do harm to me, because I actually think the risks are pretty low if you if you do de-identification and other things. And but let's just say there's a minuscule. So so I, as a prisoner in this game, my choice would be to not share my data, but to have everybody else share their data, because then I get almost all the benefits and I get no risk of cost. And I think. When we look, when we look at the debate, that seems to be people in the in the privacy debate are acting as if they're the prisoner making that choice and not looking at the broader thing. Do you do you agree with that? And do you have a sense of why and how that plays out? Yeah, so I, I do agree, Rob. I mean, I, I, in the sense that the benefits of data, 
because data is a public good, we know, and this is something that, you know, economists say, this is why we call it the dismal science. I've been saying for a long time is that any, anytime something has benefits that are not monetized, it tends to be underprovided because people are selfish. So that's exactly the reason you said it's, well, I would really be best for me if I didn't share my data, but everybody else did. It's similar to debates on vaccination. If everyone else gets vaccinated, then you don't need to get vaccinated because of herd immunity. And so it's the same logic that we've been seeing play out in the public sphere is, you know, it's really hard to get people to contribute to public goods because of the incentives to what people say is free ride. So free ride on, on the participation of others. And so I think where I would might depart from what you might consider what an economist would say is like one solution would be to, to actually monetize it, right? So we could pay some people, some people talk about this as a data dividend. So if your data is being used by companies, you're paid out for the benefits of that data. I think I actually wouldn't go that direction in part because the benefits for any one individual are likely pretty small. Like maybe you get paid out a couple bucks per year for big companies using your data. It's like really going to move the needle on anything. Probably not. But, but, but I think what's more important is to solve the technological problems with privacy to increase public trust, to communicate better about the benefits of data sharing, and then to take privacy very, very seriously. That's not a, a political problem. It's a technological problem. So if you can convince people that actually privacy can be protected and that there are big social benefits to sharing your data, I think you can convince people to do it as long as everyone else is doing it. And that's that's about social norms. So that's the direction I go in. It's not really an econ- a kind of doctrinaire economist direction. I think it's a maybe a kind of thing that an economist who works at a school of public policy where we're used to thinking about public problems would say. And so, you know, guilty as charged in that respect. Maybe that, that, you go back to your first question, that's my Kennedy School influence speaking as I think about this as a problem we have to solve publicly through norms and, and technology. So you mentioned that, yeah, you wouldn't make very much money. David Moschella, who's a really great IT expert, used to be at uh, Computer World Magazine and written a number of books. He just he's writing a series for us this year called Defending Digital. And in the last piece he wrote was just on this point that if everybody was able to monetize their data, you get almost nothing. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's minuscule. But one thing, you mentioned norms and there's a whole literature on this notion of nudge. Yeah government can nudge you in a certain way. And I think one of the most important areas there from a policy perspective is this question of opt-in versus opt-out. If you give people a choice of opt-out, hey, do you want to opt-out? I don't know, 5%, 6%, 8% of people do it. If you give them a choice of opt-in, yeah, 5%, 6 8% of people opt-in. And we we saw that with the Apple, the new Apple, uh, every time you download an app, do you want to opt-in? And it seems to me that's one of the ways of getting the norm is not, at least in our view, not, not not mandating an opt-in standard, but rather for the people who really care and don't want to do it, sure, go ahead and feel free to opt out. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think I think you know for the behavioral reasons you suggest, Rob, that could probably work just because most people don't pay attention. You still have the free rider problem that like the people who opt out are still going to get the benefits, but maybe it's a small enough share that it, it works okay. I think if it started to get bigger, you'd worry about kind of selection in who opts. So like, it's going to make all these predictions from data worse if the people who opt out are really different yeah. than the people. Who opt in. And actually a good example of that is the polling errors in the 2016 election of Donald Trump, where it was well known that there were systematic errors and who responded to polls and who didn't that, that made the forecasting off in ways that swung the election relative to expectations. And so that's an example of when you got like, and you, you're talking about huge data of you know, from pollsters, but it's all biased a little bit in favor of Clinton in this case. And so you've got lots and lots of data, but if there's a small amount of bias in it in a close election, it can give you the wrong answer in a predictive sense. And so I do worry a little bit about the opt-out if it gets to be more than a couple of percentage points. 
I would focus actually, so there's been some proposals um, to create a federal agency or to create a sub-agency within an existing agency that handles data privacy. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and others um, have proposed something like that. I would, I, I like that idea because I think these issues aren't going away. So I think you need some body that takes this issue seriously. I would just give them a dual mandate, as I said in the column, to not just think about privacy, but also say, hey, look, if we can protect the data, let's go the extra mile to make it easily available to people because of the benefits of it, going back to this conversation about MRI and A vaccines. Um, and then I think it's some of these questions are really questions that we should resolve as a public. So like I have an opinion about how to how to you know solve the public goods problem and how to protect data. You have an opinion about it. It's something we kind of have to agree on as a society after we've had the conversation about the benefits. Because I don't think that, that, I think if you ask people now, they tend to only think about the privacy, only the costs of giving my data away. Right. So I would like to do a little more public communication on the benefits and then have, and then. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, we have a, uh, Daniel Castro uh, leads our Center for Data Innovation. And that's really one of their core missions is to just show, I mean, we just did a report or just coming out, I can't remember, um, on data use in education. Uh, particularly K-12, but also college. It's really a very powerful way to improve outcomes uh, just because you know what, you have a better idea of what works. By the way, one one thing I I, I, I can't resist because I agree with you on this op- potential opt-out bias and you know there's all this concern and some of it justified on AI and, and bias. Well, if you have biased data sets because of opt-out, that's that, that can lead to that. Yep. But one of the things that some of the laws have proposed is that if you opt out, you have to be given the exact same suite of services as if you opt in or, or don't opt out. To me, that's a little bit like free riding. You're not you're not provide, you're not contributing something, but you you're mandated to get the same services. So, yeah. I don't know thoughts on that. Well, so I guess maybe it's worth talking a little bit more about um, what we're talking about opting into. So, I think there's one set of things is like if you're working with Facebook or another company. Should you be able to opt out of the, the things they do with your data? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so that's not really what I'm talking about. That's a private company using your data to make a profit. You should have the right to say, no, you can't use my data. But there's a different thing, which is, um, let's say, the U.S. Census or like public agencies that are collecting data to serve a public purpose. That I would prefer to not have an opt-out process in. I would prefer rather to say to people, we're going to protect your data. We're going to use state-of-the-art methods to do that. And we're going to punish violators of this with certainty. So we're going to take seriously violations of privacy standards and the public can feel confident that we're going to deter people from thinking about sealing their data. And I think that's something where you might say, well, government, you know, it's so hard to get things done, but it's just something we have, my view is like, we have to find a way to do it right because it's so important. So I would love for there to basically be a federal agency or again, office within an agency that takes data provision and data protection seriously across all units of government and really thinks hard about the technological problem, recruits talented people to think about this, people who have internalized the importance of it for the public good. I think actually we could train some folks like that at the Kennedy School. I'd be excited to do that. So kind of like a cohort of people who understand the the, the benefits to the public of of data and the importance of protecting privacy. When we're talking about public data, so. We have some of that now. I agree with you that, that that's a broad-based skill that all the agencies should know and all. And uh, But we do have some of that now. For example, in HHS, um, there's a team there that it looks at what you're, what you're doing with data and, and, and assesses statistically the likelihood of re-identification. And it'll come down on you and say, wait a minute, you can't use this. If you include this variable, yep. 
the risk of re-identification go up to uh, unacceptable amounts. So it seems to me that we could just be doing a lot more of that kind of thing and educate people on how to do this. Absolutely, Robin. I think there are, as you say, there are some agencies that are doing this, I would say, in different different ways, which is fine for the purposes of experimentation, because this is un, uncharted waters in some sense. But I would, you know, I think it'd be better to have an integrated approach. Just to give you one example of a contentious issue, the census has adopted these differential privacy standards with data that, you know, do protect individual privacy, but also come at pretty serious costs because they basically are perturbing the microdata in ways that prevent detection, but also lead to non-trivial errors in estimates in any small sample of what. So if you want to know, like, what's the unemployment rate, like by occupation in a metropolitan area, and you've got perturbed data with relatively small samples, you're going to get the, a meaningfully wrong answer with perturbed data. And so that's a question where, like, an agency has just decided this is, the, this is where we want to place the trade-off. And maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong, but it feels like something we ought to have a public conversation about, not let every agency make their own choice in their own way and kind of in a non-systematic way. And I'll have to just, I'll just say my personal belief, not with respect to census, but in general, is that all the incentives push us toward privacy and not toward public sharing of data. And so I, I would, that's why I wrote the column to try to be a voice on the other direction to say, like, we can't ignore these huge benefits. It seems like another example of this is HIPAA, which we're, everybody is now familiar with. It seems like there's a lot of things. Jackie. Yeah, I yeah. know. <laughs> but we've all just kind of accepted that that HIPAA is is a great methodology or whatever. And I it feels like there's a lot of information of my own that I could be sharing that is not being shared, that is yeah. not particularly interesting or proprietary, but could be helpful for health research. Yeah, it's a great point, Jackie. Like if you think about HIPAA, you would say, well, do I want to share my data with the hospitals about, you know, sensitive, my sensitive medical history? No, not really. And if I'm the only one sharing it, I definitely don't want to share it because there's no value to just knowing David Deming's medical history. But if I say, well, if I share it, everyone else is going to share it too. And then the, in terms of predictive analytics, knowing the interaction between somebody's medical history, the treatment they received and the outcome would let us increase survival rates from a procedure by 20% because we know on whom it works and on whom we ought to do more watchful waiting or whatever based on data. And that if you're going to go have a bypass surgery, you know, you have a 20% chance higher, 20% higher chance of living or something like sign me up for that. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think we, we haven't, I don't know if it's 20% or it's 1%. I don't know. But the point is we haven't made those benefits concrete to people in a way that would get them excited about sharing their data or even willing to share their data. Like we just have not had that conversation. So of course people are going to say no. There's no benefit. There's, we're not making the benefits clear. So in this conversation are, but like we as a society are not. So, And Rob uses this example a lot. Rob says frequently when we're talking about this is, you know, he wants his kids to have access to better medication and, and resources than we have. Yeah. And you kind of, if, if you, if you put it in those terms, sure, you know, if, if my daughter having access to my medical data when I'm gone helps her live longer, then of course I would want that. Yeah, that's very well said. Couldn't said it better myself. Yeah, David, I mean, I really think this is really critical, almost like the core issue here, because if, if, if you're a member of Congress and all you're hearing is data privacy, like, for example, in, the, in, in Europe, they actually say strange things to me all the time. But one of the strange things they say is that privacy is a fundamental human right. And when they were passing GDPR over there, their, their, their data protection bill, one of the opponents or group that, that opposed, at least not like they opposed the entire bill, but they opposed provisions that would have made it difficult, was the Swedish Oncologist Association. 
because they said they thought this would make it harder for them to do oncology research. And I remember I was in a debate in Brussels with somebody. I said, surviving cancer is a fundamental human right, too. And we just haven't been a, done a good enough job of explaining, those, as you said, those 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 trade-offs and the balances there. I think that's right, and I and I think that one of the reasons why is because, well, most of us, the way we way we think about possible violations of our privacy with data are with private companies who are trying to sell us advertising on the web or on our phones. Like that, that's the dominant way in which we experience privacy loss is. Some company use I, I logged in to get some discount and they use my email address and they harvested it and somebody stole the password and and you know that's it's not hard to understand why people would come to that conclusion. I think we just have to have a clearer conversation about the benefits to the public of making certain kinds of data available to public agencies or you know researchers or whatever is very different than like allowing private companies to harvest your data and micro target advertisements to you. And that like the public benefits of that latter thing are basically zero, maybe negative. And so I, in a way, like at least for me, this comes back to a, a kind of very slow progress on understanding the value of data for solving public problems. Like we, we need more technological and more data sophistication in our, in our public problem solving. I guess I might differ with you a little bit on that. I mean, I think there's a difference between a company, a private company who uses your data without your permission to sell it uh, versus a private company that anonymously just matches you. Uh, yeah. Hey, I'm, yeah. you know, I, I like basketball and, and so fine, I get a basketball ad, but they don't know me. Also, one of the other interesting things, I was in Australia a few years ago and, and I was talking to the, uh, there's a government, a big government research center there and they were actually using publicly, uh, well, Data that's public, like Facebook and Twitter, actually to solve some really interesting questions. And I know Facebook has done this, for example. They did something a few years ago on where they were able to give academics access to anonymized data sets. And one of the issues was something about postpartum depression. And that's about all I remember. But they were able to make some interesting findings and discoveries. And so, again, it's to me, it's a question of how do you use it? And are there the right restrictions in place to keep it private. That, that's a very fair point, Rob, and allow me to make an addendum to what I said before. I don't think it's about the whether the company who's using the data is private or public, but rather whether the data is being used to solve a public or private problem. Sure. So you can use private, privately collected data, in fact, many people do, to solve public problems. And I, I think that's great. And your example is, is that. David, maybe one last question, and that's, I don't know how much how familiar you are with this concept, but I know the UK government, they, they actually have a, a, a national data office. I, I think it's in the prime minister's office or somewhere there. I met with them. And, and one of the things that they've put in place is this notion of data trusts. Hmm. So it's a the notion of, hey, we're going to put all the healthcare data together. But hey, the, here are the rules. Here are the procedures. Here are the statistical things you have to do. But the idea, and the same thing, for example, with smart cities, I know some places have, let's put all the smart city data together, and then we can learn from each other. That requires government, though, to organize a trust, uh, to put in place the sharing mechanisms, the protection mechanisms. Just curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, I'm, I'm not intimately familiar with that initiative, but from what you say, it sounds like they're, the UK is ahead of the US, at least the federal government on this. I think there are really, as you say, smart cities is one example. There are promising models at the state and local level of using data to solve problems. Part of this, I think it will develop over time because these data have not actually been around and usable for that long. And we're just beginning to understand how they can be helpful and how they can be harmful. And so part of it is just creating knowledge, 
over time and younger generations will be more familiar with these techniques and using data and so forth. So I think part of it is that, but I would like to accelerate that by getting people excited about, frankly, about what problems we can solve with data that, that are hard to solve without it. And so that's where, again, like that's why I wrote the column and that's why I'm delighted to talk to you all about it is I don't, ha I don't hear this conversation happening often enough for my taste um, because as somebody who uses data for a living and uses it to understand you know, not just research questions, but really important questions. Like when I was thinking about where to send my kids to school, like I'm looking up data and like lots of people are. Absolutely. Um, and so it just seems like a kind of core competency in, in the 21st century and, and therefore something that governments ought to be good with as well. The point you made, I thought was such an important one, which is we're still pretty early on in this. And we haven't yeah. fully explored all the technology issues, all the, all, the, all the governance issues. And what I worry about is I think the Europeans went too fast, too soon, and they precluded and, and closed off certain areas. So it's not like we shouldn't have regulation, but I think we've got to really be careful that we, as we regulate this area, we put both of those priorities in place. Yep. Data innovation and use, like you said, and also privacy. And I worry that if we maybe go too fast, too far, we might close off the, the latter uh, or the former, I should say. I'm worried about that as well. And I think that the only way out of that is to, again, make the conversation about the benefits of data use just as important as the conversation about the costs of privacy violations. Yeah, It's not that privacy is unimportant. It's very important. It's just not the only thing that matters in this space. Exactly. And that conversation, the European example, I think shows that that conversation about privacy is, has moved much faster and much and gone much deeper than the conversation about the benefits of data sharing. Right. So time to rebalance. On that note, David, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure. A lot of fun to talk to you about. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please feel free to rate us and subscribe. Also email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. There will be more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in. 